This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Mark 9, verses 30 to 50. And you'll see the words on the screen as well. Listen to the word of God. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can, in the next moment, say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Would you join me in bowing your heads for this traditional prayer in the second Sunday of Advent? Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Churches are hard to build, but they are very easy to destroy. 
Has anyone ever seen the television show, show Destroyed in Seconds? You watch some guy with a $100,000 speedboat, and in the course of seven seconds, he takes us, he jumps it too high, the thing flips over, the fiberglass shatters, and his precious investment is destroyed. I no longer need to watch that show because we have children, and this happens in our house in a regular occurrence. It is hard to build things, and it is extremely easy to destroy them. It is hard to build and grow a church. It takes patience and prayer and hard work, and you can destroy a church very, very quickly. And I bet if we pooled all our stories, we would have many tales of churches that we were involved in that shattered and splintered or fell apart in some way to the cost of us all. TICF is a lot more fragile than we realize. And it would not take much, it would not take many people in this church to tear it in pieces. And that is a danger that Jesus wants each of us to guard against with all diligence. Here we are in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus, yet again, is teaching his disciples that he is going to suffer and to die. The Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men. And the Son of Man in the book of Daniel is this glorious, heavenly, dominating figure. And the shocking thing that Jesus shares with the disciples is that that this person, meant for dominion and reign and glory, is going to be handed over into the hands of human beings. Handed over by God is what is clearly implied. And Jesus is going willingly on the way to Jerusalem to his crucifixion. This is the last time, I believe, that Galilee will be mentioned in Mark's gospel. Jesus is setting his face like flint towards the terrible destiny that he has chosen to embrace because it is the will of God. And he is taking time again to walk his disciples through what is going to happen. All their expectations of joy and glory and triumph and victory are going to be shattered by what Jesus has actually come to do. We do celebrate Advent as the arrival of the Prince of Peace, who is going to destroy every weapon, to conquer every enemy, and to bring life and joy into the world. But the path that Jesus is going to take is going to be a dark and twisting one. And it's not one the disciples are eager to hear about. Because after Jesus speaks, Mark tells us, the disciples didn't understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask. No follow-up questions from the disciples after Jesus' lesson. No one stepped forward, no one put up their hand, no one interjected. They were afraid to ask Jesus what it meant. And possibly with good reason, because the last time Jesus had spoken, Peter had jumped in there, and Jesus had just shot him down. Get behind me, Satan! And I'm sure after that, no one was too quick to volunteer with the questions or the observations. But I think there's something more going on. The disciples were afraid to ask, and they didn't want to know the answer. 
It's much easier to live in a state of denial, isn't it? You don't want to take a look at your bank account because you know what you're going to see there. You're afraid to go to the doctor to check this lump in your breast you found because you don't want to hear the awful words. And the disciples have a very bad feeling about what Jesus is going to do. And they would prefer to live in a nice, cozy world where nothing bad happens than to face the honest truth that Jesus wants to share them. They prefer to live in ignorance and denial. But Jesus is about to teach them and to teach us this afternoon what it means to be a disciple of a Messiah who has come to suffer and to serve and to sacrifice himself. What does it mean to follow this kind of Jesus? Man, we would love to follow a Jesus who goes about crushing enemies and bringing forth glorious victory. But what does it mean to follow Jesus on the road to the cross? That is what Jesus is going to teach them. So here the disciples are. They're following Jesus along the road, and they are jostling and bickering and fighting. Jesus is up in front, and they are following him, probably in single file as his disciples. And they're all eager to be the ones right behind Jesus at the front of the line. And after a long day of traveling by foot, they finally arrive in Capernaum. And they go into the house, very likely Peter's house. And as they're hanging up their jackets and taking off their boots and getting a glass of water, Jesus asks the boys, So, what was it that you guys were arguing about on the road? What was it that you were bickering about? And what they had been arguing about was this. Who is the greatest in God's kingdom? Who is the greatest? And this was no deferential argument. Oh, I'm sure it's you who are the greatest. You're so much better than me. No, no, no. It's you. I'm sure it's you. Nothing of the sort. Each of them was convinced that he was the most important, the most loved by God, the most vital disciple among the twelve. That is what they were arguing about on the road. And how astounding that these 12 men would be arguing about something so petty and so ridiculous. Remember, these were not the 12 highest scores on an exam Jesus sent out and received hundreds of thousands of applications for. He did not pick through and see who was the most intelligent, the most gifted, the most eloquent, or the most powerful. These were just guys who were sitting at their tax collecting booth or pulling nets in from their boat, and Jesus appeared and said, Hey, you, you there, come and follow me. Their presence among the twelve was an act of Jesus' grace alone. As he reminded them, You did not choose me, I chose you. And how foolish that these men, ignorant, ordinary, uneducated men, were now elbowing each other and trying to determine which of them was the most important. They had been chosen by God's grace alone. And even more astounding, the road that is filled with their arguments, the way they are following, is the way to Jerusalem, the way to Calvary. They are following a Messiah who is on his way to die and sacrifice himself for a lost world. 
And he's been repeatedly teaching them that this is his destiny. And how jarring, how grossly inappropriate that while Jesus is on his way to sacrifice himself, these 12 men are bickering about who is the most important. How embarrassing and how shameful. And so when Jesus asks them, so what was it that you were arguing about? They kept quiet. No leaders now to be seen. No one's eager now to step forward as the most important representative of the 12. Oh no, now they're all keeping quiet and backing away. And I'm sure some of the lesser disciples like Thaddeus were giving Peter and James a little poke in the back. Yeah, come on, say something. But they know, they know, this is, this is kind of embarrassing and kind of shameful because it's all about them and their precious little egos. What if Jesus were to ask us, so what is it that you were arguing about along the way? I think we would all feel a little embarrassed and a little ashamed of some of the things that get us all upset and hot under the collar, don't we? Because isn't it true that the vast majority of conflicts in the church are not really about doctrine or theology or about strategy or about mission choices? They're deep down, they're almost always about people's egos, people's pride, people's arrogance and craving to be the most important and the most dominating figure in the church. And we might be a little more polite than the disciples. We rarely argue directly, I'm the greatest. But in our different ways, we are carefully jostling to be the ones at the front of the line. Some cultures are much more direct. Some are a little more polite. Some think about status as being an individual thing. Some think about it as status as to which group we belong to. But everyone in his own way is trying to figure out a way to establish himself as the most important, the most precious, and the most dominating figure. And even if, in honesty, we can't really think of ourselves as the greatest, darn, we wish we could, don't we? Wouldn't it be nice to be the most important person in this church or your small group or your ministry? We all love that idea. And it's so insidious. And this is the root of what could destroy this church. I began as interim pastor of TICF back in May. And one of the first things we had to do at our management board meeting was to decide what was going to happen in the month of August. We had previously met outdoors in in August at Lisey Lake. And I really wanted that to end. I wanted us to have church here for various reasons. And I was... I was kind of miffed that all three members of the management board at my very first meeting voted me down unanimously and decided, no, we're going to have this outdoors in August. And I came home from that meeting feeling, feeling a little bit irritated about it. I felt like I wasn't being given the deference and respect that I should have as the interim pastor. And they had the nerve, they had the audacity to, to override what I wanted to do. And I was irritated and it bugged me a bit. And if you remember, if you were here in August, the very first Sunday in August, it was a beautiful, beautiful afternoon. We were headed up to the lake, and about 3 o'clock, suddenly, clouds covered the sky, and it began to rain. You might have been disappointed, but I was a little bit pleased. <laughs> I was a little bit pleased. 
And I was scheming about a way to bring this to the attention of the management board, of course, in a very godly and humble way, obviously. (laughs) But, you know, you guys really should have listened to me and to my wisdom. And actually, we had a really great time at the lake in August, didn't we? It was a really special time of getting together as brothers and sisters and, and bonding together as a family. And in retrospect, I'm really glad we did it. So I apologize, management board. Um, it was a good decision. And I'm glad that God convicted me in that moment of what was starting to happen in my heart. This, this tiny little seed of resentment and irritation over something, in retrospect, quite ludicrous, but that could so easily have begun to grow into a large, um, dominating kind of resentment that could have really damaged this church. I'm the most dangerous man in TICF. That would actually be a good email address. The most dangerous man in this church is me. But we all have the ability to create fissures and division by our own petty ego over stupid, stupid things that we would be utterly embarrassed to tell Jesus if he appeared among us. What was it you were arguing about on the way? See, in Jesus' kingdom, he tells the disciples, ambition is good, but you need to point it in the other direction. Be ambitious to be the last, to be the least, not the greatest. This is Jesus' upside-down kingdom that overturns all the values of the world. Or should we say, the right-side-up kingdom? Because it's this world that is all backwards and inside-out. This is the way it should be. Thinking, how can I find the lowest place? While everyone is scrabbling and climbing and elbowing to get to the top, we as Christians should be passing them on our way to the bottom. And the good news is there's lots of room down there. You don't have to fight with anybody. You can have all the space you want at the bottom of the ladder. And isn't Jesus the supreme example of this? Jesus is at the very top of the ladder, far above anything we can ever hope to attain to, sitting at the right hand of God himself. But he doesn't think of equality with God as something to be grasped to, to be clung onto. Paul tells us in Philippians, but he took on himself the form of a servant and he humbled himself and he came into this world to give himself for people like us. The first becomes the last. Jesus really is the alpha and the omega. And if we are going to be truly his disciples, we must model ourselves on him. To be the last, to be the very last, he says, and the servant of all, the servant of all. And hey, no one likes being a servant, do they? No one wants to be a servant. Here's what the philosopher Plato said thousands of years ago. How can a man be happy if he has to serve someone? How could you be happy if you have to serve someone? For your will to be determined by the needs and desires of someone else. How can a man be happy if he has to serve someone? And that's what human beings have believed for thousands of years. And here is Jesus saying, not just be the servant of someone, but be the servant of everyone. To be the servant 
of all, that there is no person in this community that you are not a servant of. Not just serving the honorable, important people, hoping that some of their status rubs off on you, but even the very lowest, to be a servant of all, which is exactly what Jesus does. So the question we should be asking in every interaction we have, in every conversation we enter into is this. How can I serve this person? How can I serve her? How can I serve him? What is some way that I can bring good into this person's life? We don't even think about that, do we? We're thinking, how can this person serve me? How can I get something from this person? We are takers and not givers. But we need to be deliberate to ask that question. Before you go off to church, to your small group, for dinner with a friend, how can I serve this person? And certainly, God will make it clear to you. Dawson Trotman was the man who founded The Navigators. Is anyone familiar with that ministry, The Navigators? They do Bible studies all over the world, and they've been doing this for 60 or 70 years. And he was the president and founder of this organization, a very important person in the kingdom of God, we would think. And he was, he was hiking in Taiwan through the jungles, and it was wet, and it was a dirty day. And when him, he was hiking with a Taiwanese pastor, when they finally emerged from the jungle into this man's home, their shoes were just caked and covered in mud. And they took their shoes off, and the, the pastor went to the kitchen to make some tea. And he was stunned to come out and see Dawson Trotman sitting on the stoop with a little stick cleaning the pastor's shoes. That is what service looks like. It's not complicated. It's not fancy. Anyone can clean someone's shoes. Isn't this good news? That greatness in the kingdom of God does not depend on how much money you have or how many degrees you have behind your name or how many languages you speak or what experiences you have or what connections you, you, you know about. Anyone can be a servant. Anyone can be a servant. No one is too young. No one is too old. No one is too rich. No one is too poor. No one has the wrong skin color. Anyone can be a servant. And anyone can scrape mud off someone's shoes. This is an equal opportunity that Jesus is presenting. Anyone in this church could be the greatest. It's open to everybody if you are willing to join Jesus and be a servant. There are an amazing number of biographies published, and you can go and read about all these great Christians from the past and the present, people who accomplished incredible things for God. But there are very few, perhaps no biographies, of completely ordinary Christians. I don't want to read about some great pastor or some great missionary or some basketball player or actor. I would like to read about just a completely ordinary person, the kind of person that we all overlook might be the most important person to God. And when we get to heaven and are looking on our tiptoes toward the throne of God, Jesus is going to be surrounded by people that we don't even recognize, that no one in Christian history has ever heard about because they took the very bottom place. And that is where you get closest to Jesus. And Jesus says, not only serve everybody, but serve the weakest. 
as he sits down, he takes a little child in the house and he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. If you welcome and serve one of these little children, you welcome me. Notice that Jesus is not saying here, become like a little child. That's going to be in the next chapter of Mark. He's talking about whoever welcomes and serves a little child. In the ancient world, children were at the very bottom rung of society. They had no status. They had no honor. They had no power. Children were at the bottom. And in Greek and Roman society, for example, it was very normal just to throw, literally throw your children away. There's a letter that uh, archaeologists found um, written by a businessman in Egypt. He's away from home, and he's writing back to his wife. Hey, how are things going? The business trip is going well. So you probably had the baby by now, he writes. If it's a boy, keep him. If it's a girl, throw her in the garbage. This was how children were treated in the ancient world. Basically, nothing. And Jews, of course, would never kill their own children. But even in Judaism, children were thought of as small, weak, and foolish. They did not know the law, and very little attention had to be given to them. But Jesus is saying, these people at the bottom, with no status and no honor, these are the ones you should serve. You don't get much from serving kids. I have never had an amazing network opportunity from a seven-year-old. That just doesn't happen. Kids give you nothing. They take and take. They give you very little. There's no angle in serving a child. And this is what Jesus is telling us to do. Not to go down to the level of a child, but to go below that level. Not to be a child at the bottom, but to be a servant of that child. To serve the very least and the very smallest ones in Christ's kingdom. Serving is difficult. Serving kids is difficult. This sermon would be a much better sermon if my stupid kids didn't keep interrupting me while I was trying to write it. It's very easy to write eloquent sermons about service and to say noble things about what it means to be a servant. But to actually serve children and small people is not easy. That cuts across the grain but that is what Jesus is asking us to do. So, how do you relate to the little ones in Christ's kingdom? How do you treat children? How do you treat the physically handicapped? How do you treat those who are a little awkward, a little weird, a little weak perhaps? Those who go through their Christian life struggling and having difficulty and never seeming to grow. Do we become impatient with those people? Do we shove them to the side? There's a Christian book recently, written recently, that said, don't waste your time on negative people. Thank God Jesus wastes his time on negative people. And he wastes his time on people who seem to sap his energy. Jesus spends time with the little ones, and he spends time with the weak ones. And shame on us if we skip over the little ones so we can spend time with the great ones in Christ's kingdom. Jesus says when we welcome the little ones, when we show hospitality to them, when we invite them into our lives and treat them as equal or even greater than us, we are welcoming Jesus and we are welcoming his Father. Because Jesus Christ came for the little people.
He came for the little people. That's what we're thinking about this Advent. Think of Mary's song of praise when the angel appears to her. It's all about God pulling down the proud and exalting the humble on the ash heap. Jesus came for the little people. They are precious to him. He died for the little people. And shame on us if we treat them then less than that. He came for the little people. And do you know what? As we grow in the Christian life, the Holy Spirit reveals to us, we are all little people. From God's perspective, we are all so tiny and insignificant. We are all little people, and we are all loved by God. We are loved by God. If you try to be a great person, you can't be loved by God. You are setting yourself outside of the circle of those whom God loves. He loves the little people. And do you know what? If God calls me his child, if he calls you his son or his daughter, what other status do you need? What other status could possibly compete with being called a child of God? The other night, Andrew Thornhill was asking us, what is the smallest amount of money you would, you would, you would bend down and pick off up from the street? We're like, well, maybe, I don't know about a dime, but maybe a quarter, 25 cents, 20 tetri, would you pick that up? And then he was asking us, how much do you think Bill Gates would not bother to pick up from the ground? What would not be worth his time? It's something like $40,000. He makes such an enormous amount of money from his billions and billions in investments that $40,000 would not be worth his time to pick up. That should be our attitude with regards to human greatness. Why am I wasting my time with this little scrap of tinsel when I am called a son or daughter of God? When I get to reign with Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, why am I so worried about being the leader of the worship team or being in charge of the small group or whatever stupid thing that we get obsessed with? We have far greater dignities that God has given to us. And all this greatness and all this status is a gift of God's sheer grace. We are not there because we have earned our way up there or because we deserve more than other people. It is simply and sweetly part of God's generosity to us. See, in the world, you start at the bottom and you've got to work your way up. But in the kingdom, you start at the top and you work your way down. All of the status you're ever going to get is given to you at the very beginning of the Christian life. You may only have been a Christian for a few weeks or a few months. You are at the top. And now join us in climbing down the ladder to the bottom following Jesus. And you know what? When you have that security and that status from God, you don't need to be worried about what other people think about me or how I think about myself. Who cares about that stuff? I'm loved by God. I'm God's child. I can afford to be the smallest. I can afford to serve the very least because I know who I am in Christ. So the first thing Jesus teaches us is to serve and welcome the little ones. Second thing is this, to be grateful for any allies that we have. This is the key to unity within the church, to be grateful for any allies we have. Here's Jesus talking. Clearly, the disciples are not even listening to what he's saying because John is waiting for Jesus' mouth to stop moving so he can jump in 
and boast about what they did. Hey, Jesus, guess what? We saw someone casting out a demon in your name, but don't worry, Jesus. We shut him down all right. Hey, you, whoa, whoa, whoa. How dare you cast out a demon without a license? You, sir, stop that immediately. And I demand that you put that unclean spirit back in that poor woman where it came from. Only we have been licensed by Jesus to cast out demons. And no doubt, Jesus is very concerned about his trademark issues. Only we among the 12 are authorized and anyone else is messing up what Jesus is all about. And so John steps forward and says to Jesus, we have shut down this person. And the irony about this, of course, is that the 12 were not too successful in casting out a demon themselves, were they? They had just spent a very frustrating day at the bottom of the mountain trying any which way to get the demon out of this poor demonized boy. And nothing was working for them. And the scribes were tutting and arguing with them, and they were sweating and all tense, the crowds around them. Of course, the time when you have an audience, a huge audience, is when you're failing, right? And these disciples are very stressed, and then Jesus comes down and does it for them. And you would have thought that if you had such difficulty yourself casting out a demon, you would not be quite so harsh on those who do seem to have some success, would you? But isn't it true that it's often our own failure that causes us to criticize others? If I can't cast out a demon, I'm not too happy that you can yourself. Because that kind of makes me look bad, doesn't it? It makes me look a little, a little dumb and makes me look like a little failure. We don't like to see that. You know, the disciples should have spent their time in fasting and prayer like Jesus told them to, right? You can't cast out this demon? It's because you're not praying. This kind only comes out by prayer. Is there a response to go up alone on the mountainside and really seek the face of God so that they can have power over the realm of Satan? No, because you know what? It's a lot easier to criticize other Christians than to pray ourselves, isn't it? It takes a lot less effort to lean back in our chair and come up with our list about what other Christians are doing wrong. It's hard to pray. It's hard to roll up our sleeves and engage with, in battle with the evil one. Far easier to nitpick about what other Christians are doing wrong. And Jesus says to John, to his surprise, no, no, no. Don't, don't stop him. I'm pretty sure this is not one of the bad guys. No one who casts out a demon in my name, he says, is the next minute going to start bad-mouthing me. This is not one of the bad guys, you silly disciples. He's one of our own, really. And what on earth are the disciples so worried about? I mean, there are more than enough demons to go around. We're not going to run out of unclean spirits for people to cast out. There's plenty, plenty, plenty of ministry that needs to be done in this dark world. And we don't need to be squabbling with other Christians about who gets what piece of the pie, like a bunch of ninny heads. There's more than enough demons to go around. And the disciples have failed to focus on the true center. You notice that what John says to Jesus, his complaint is that he is not one of us. Literally, he's not following us, Jesus. He doesn't say he's not following you. He's, following, he's not following us. Not one of us, 12, and Jesus. And may the circle never grow larger. This is what he's worried about. 
There, Jesus, he's not so much worried about Jesus' status. He's worried about his own status and the status of the other 11 disciples. I mean, yes, they're arguing among themselves, but at least it's only 12 of them. God forbid that Jesus start doing things and partnering with other people outside of this tight little group. This is what he's worried about. And Jesus says, the main thing is this, that he's doing a miracle in my name and how he speaks about me. That's what Jesus is concerned about. He is the true center. Not only that, these disciples have failed to focus on the true enemy, haven't they? The bad guy is Satan. The demons are the bad guys, not other Christians. There is warfare to be had, and there is a fierce enemy that we need to fight. And we will have plenty enough to do with the forces of darkness without jabbing our knives into those on the left and the right of us. Remember who the true enemy is. You know, it's the generals back at comfortable headquarters who start criticizing those in the other, other divisions, isn't it? But if you are in the trenches fighting for your life, you are glad for whoever shows up to support you. That's what we need to be doing. And of course, the disciples have also fo- failed to focus on the true victims. They saw this demon being cast out and they were feeling sorry for themselves. Instead of feeling compassion for this person who was being demonized. What a horrible thing to be angry at seeing someone freed from the power of Satan. What a shameful thing when we feel resentment in seeing another church or another ministry or another missions organization having success in bringing freedom to people who are walking in darkness. Shame on us if we feel resentment and irritation rising in our hearts when we see God working out of our own little circle. Shame on us. Because Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. The question is this, do they confess Jesus and are they serving his kingdom? And if they are, God bless them. God bless them. You know, this kind of, this story reminds us of um, Numbers 11. There's a couple guys there named Eldad and Medad. I'd be very shocked if anyone knew who these guys were. They've got kind of funny names, so they should be easy to remember. Eldad and Medad. And their problem was this. The Spirit of the Lord rested on these guys, and they were going through the camp prophesying. And some people came running to Joshua, and he went to Moses saying, Moses, terrible news. There are people prophesying, and they're not you. Please make them stop. Do you remember what Moses said? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That is a noble spirit in Moses. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Would that everyone was going about healing the sick and casting out demons and preaching the gospel. If our zeal is for the kingdom of Jesus to expand, not our own personal little fiefdoms to grow, then we will be men and women who have the hearts of Christ. See, there are other Christian groups out there that are not, they don't belong to us. Let us pray for them and ask that God would bless them. And if we see deficiencies, pray that God would correct those deficiencies as well just as we would hope they would pray for us and ask God to correct our own deficiencies, which also exist 
and need help from God. TICF, we're not the only disciples of Jesus in this city. We're not the only international church. We're not the only people that the Spirit of God is working in. Because it was only this, look around, this is not a big group of people. It would be bad news if we were the only ones that God was using. We should feel joy and gratitude when we see the Holy Spirit working in other groups and pray that God would bless them. See, God honors Christians who reach across lines, who reach across human divisions to help each other. No one who gives a cup of cold water to another Christian is going to lose his reward. A cup of cold water is a gift that only a very poor person would give. And it's a gift that only a truly desperate person would be glad to receive. And Jesus is envisaging a time of persecution when you will be fleeing from your life, for your life from the authorities and someone quietly steps forward and offers you a cup of water. God will reward them. And may he give us that same kind of spirit of generosity and fellow feeling to other Christians. And the point is this. They will give it to you because you belong to the Messiah. Here is our true loyalty. Not our denomination. Not our missions agency. Not our little group. Our loyalty is to King Jesus and to him alone. And anyone who utters the secret password of Jesus, anyone who flies his flag, should be our friends. And our hearts should warm to anyone who also serves the true king. That is the kind of spirit we need a lot more of in Christianity, do we not? The third thing that Jesus wants us to do is this. He wants us to be most severe with ourselves. If you are hungry for conflict, if you have a thirst for violence, there is plenty here to occupy you. Severity against yourself and violence against your own sins. I'm talking about the last part of our passage where Jesus talks about those who cause others to stumble and those who cause themselves to stumble. And he talks about the severe warfare, even to the extent of chopping off hands and feet and gouging out eyes. This is the warfare that Jesus calls us to. His first concern is that we don't trip up the little ones. I'm looking at verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to sin, it would be better for them for a large millstone Jesus is talking about a millstone this big, literally a millstone that would have been pulled by a donkey. Not a little personal-sized millstone, a big, honking, heavy millstone. Better to wear one of those as a collar around your neck and be heaved into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Stumbling, he's talking about tripping and falling and losing your faith. If you walk around Tbilisi, there are many opportunities to stumble. This city seems to be designed to give you many opportunities to stumble. It's as though the city engineers were thinking, how can we prevent people from wasting their time looking down at their phones? And they deliberately designed the streets with as many obstacles as possible. I've been walking past a bus stop one time, and there was just a bolt sticking up from the ground. 
and I just nailed my toe against it because I, I was not looking where I was going. Jesus does not want us to be the kind of people who are bolts sticking up from the ground for people to smash their toe against and plummet to their death. He's very concerned that our behavior towards one another, our thirst to be the greatest, and our criticism of others, what effect does that have on small, weak, new, and tender Christians? I was a part of a church in Vancouver for 11 or 12 years. It was a great church, and it preached the gospel. And a lot of people came to Christ and grew in that church. Unfortunately, there was a team of pastors of elders, and the guy who was the senior pastor was not a great leader. And the other pastors wanted him to step down and just be an equal, don't lead the group anymore. Maybe someone else would be better suited for it. And this great church was torn apart because of this argument between the pastoral leadership about who was going to be in charge. And he left and planted his own church. It was really a church split, and that church failed. And just a month ago, our old church shut down. It was a great church, and things were going well among the pews. But because the leadership was divided, the church fell apart. And I know we have friends who were severely burned by that whole experience. And their faith was greatly damaged. And now they are hardened and cynical about the church and perhaps even Jesus because of what these leaders did or failed to do. And Jesus threatens severe judgment on those whose ego and whose thirst for power damages weak Christians. David Garland says that God shows more concern for the little one's fragile faith than the great one's fragile egos. If you have an enormous ego and you're easily offended, you need to listen in fear to what Jesus says here. It would be better for you for a massive millstone to be hung around your neck and for you to be tossed overboard to the bottom of the sea than to be the kind of person who causes others to stumble. What a horrifying punishment it would be to have a rock tied around your neck and to be drowned. I think we all have this visceral fear of drowning and what that would feel like. And for a Jew, especially in the ancient world, the worst thing about this punishment would have been that your body would never have been recovered for decent burial. Your corpse would rot way down at the bottom of the sea. This is not the kind of death that you want. And Jesus is saying this horrific, awful death would actually be better than the judgment of God that is awaiting you for causing another Christian to stumble and lose their faith. Don't trip up little Christians and don't trip up yourself because you might stumble also. Your greatest danger is yourself. Not other Christians, not even Satan. Your greatest danger is yourself and the sin that lies within your own heart. You are at risk of destroying yourself. And it's the things dearest to you, your eye, your hand, your foot, those are the things that are in most danger of destroying you forever. And Jesus is saying the stakes are eternal. 
The stakes are ginormous. They're massive. There's a subreddit called Sweaty Palms. You ever watch stuff online, some video of some extreme sport, and you, can start, you start to feel your own palms sweat out of sympathetic fear toward what this crazy person is doing? There's one, for example, of someone who is on a ledge outside a building. The ground is way down there, like five or ten stories below. And the ledges are about this wide, and they are about probably six feet apart or more. You cannot step from ledge to ledge, but you can run and leap and land and run and leap. And he runs across these ledges, and then the last one, he skids to a stop just before the end. When Jesus talks about stumbling, he's not talking about just tripping on the street. He's talking about tripping and, and plummeting to eternal destruction. If you were so foolish as to be one of these people doing these crazy sports, I'm sure you'd be very careful to make sure that your shoes were tied very tightly before you did something so reckless. What about the laces of our souls, as it were? What is it that's going to cause us to trip and stumble, those things that are very dear to us that could prevent us from enjoying eternal life with God? Notice, incidentally, that Jesus has no fear of motivating us with the fear of hell. Some Christians say you should only motivate with grace. You should only say nice, cheerful, encouraging, triumphant things. Jesus has no hesitation in bringing out the fires of hell to compel us to obedience. It is interesting. Uh, Alan Cole notes that in the Gospels, Jesus preaches heaven to the sinners, and hell to the saints. Hell should be preached internally among us to remind us of the fearful destiny of falling away from God because we are too kind and too gentle and we coddle ourselves. The word for hell that Jesus used is Gehenna, and this refers to a valley southwest of Jerusalem. It was used in the Old Testament during a degenerate age for the sacrifice of children to idols. And when King Josiah came to the throne, he was a reformer, and he decided, I'm going to desecrate this place, and he turned it into a garbage heap. That's where you would throw the entrails of animals, and human waste was dumped here, and this thing was burning constantly. Maggots were crawling all over it, and the stench must have been absolutely horrific walking towards this steaming, disgusting heap of garbage. And this is the terrifying picture Jesus uses describe the destiny of those who fall away from him. We do not want to be those who trip and stumble or to be those who shove others over the edge. And Jesus' a description of cutting off hands and feet and gouging out eyes is a metaphorical way of saying, repent no matter how painful, no matter how costly. Whatever God is calling you to do, Far better to endure that pain and to endure that loss than something that is going to be eternal and is going to last forever. Whatever it is, greed, anger, malice, pride, all the different manifestations of self and of the ego need to be ruthlessly put to death. Has anyone seen that film? I think it's called 27 Hours. It's an American hiker who goes out into the wilderness This is not the kind of film that I enjoy watching at the end of an exhausting day. But he goes out into the wilderness. He's climbing alone. 
And he slips and he falls, and I think he gets his arm stuck between two rocks. And he can't use his phone. He's alone. He's far away from help. And what he eventually has to do is take out his knife and saw off his limb so he can save himself. What a horrifying thing to have to do. It makes me feel queasy even talking about it. To get to that point of desperation where you would be willing to do something so horrific to yourself in order to save your own life. It's a picture of what God is calling us to do. To take those things that seem to be at the very core of who we are, that we desperately love and cannot imagine ourselves without. Jesus is saying, you need to cut those things away if they are going to prevent you from enjoying eternal life with me. The stakes could not be higher. See, Jesus wants us to be far more concerned with ourself and our own sin than the sin and failings of those around us. Imagine what Christian community would be like if we were all focused on our own growth and our own walk with God, if we were welcoming any allies who came along, and if we had the heart of a servant and of a person who sacrifices themselves just like Jesus. Imagine what community could be like. Salt is good, Jesus says. If it loses its saltiness, it's no longer salt. It's good to be a disciple, but you have to manifest what a disciple is all about, following Jesus as a servant and a sacrificer. If you fail to be that kind of person, you no longer taste very disciply. Only, the only disciples are not those who call themselves disciples or who boast about who they are, but those who actually act like disciples and follow Jesus. And then Jesus concludes by inviting us to have salt among ourselves and to be at peace with one another. He's using all these different images for salt. And salt in the ancient world and in many countries today is a symbol of hospitality. In Russia, I believe, salt, offering salt and bread is a symbol of welcome and inviting someone to your table. Jesus is saying, I want you to be the kind of people who have open tables with one another. Even the very smallest person, even the very least, is welcome at your table as a friend, as a brother, and as an equal, so that you can live at peace with one another. At Advent, we express our longing for the Prince of Peace to come, to preach peace on earth and goodwill to men. And if this church is a place of bickering and egotism and condemnation and struggling, then Christmas is just a bunch of hypocritical sentimentalism. Jesus wants us to be people like himself, people of peace and humility. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.